Well, good morning. If you're joining us online, if you're somewhere on a sunny beach, send me a picture. I hope you're watching. If you're tuning in right now or sometime later in the evening, later in the week, uh, welcome. If you're on the floor, you're up in the balcony, uh, it's so good to be together. It's good to be here in this place. We can't wait till Easter to celebrate the resurrection, what this whole thing is really about. Well, this morning we continue in the book of Romans, and we're continuing on this journey. Last week we talked about how we live somewhere in between the already, all the things that Jesus has already done for us, and the not yet, the glorious promises that one day we too will rise. One day we too will live without pain, without suffering, without sin. But we live in the right now, right now. And Paul is trying to help us understand how do we live right now? How do we live in the midst of this battle? Now the Apostle Paul, as you've heard, as Kim read those passages, He's going to describe two competing ways to live. You can live under sin, under the law, or you can live under grace. And to explain those, Paul is going to use some analogies that if you paid attention, that may grate your ears when you hear the word slavery. Those are hard to hear. Those are hard words to hear. Paul himself even says in 619, he says, I am speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, Paul is saying, look, I'm going to give you some analogies here. I'm going to try to help you understand in your particular context. But your brains are limited. Anybody have a limited brain? <laughs> We're all there. You can't fully grasp it. But part of what God's Word does is it meets us in our context. It meets us in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the already and the not yet, in the midst of the battle. Now, as we hear the word slavery, it grates my ears because whenever I hear slavery, I think of the United States, and I think of our own history of slavery, which is so, so painful. And I'm reminded that some of the greatest theologians, some of the greatest leaders of that day were, were slave owners and slaveholders, and at some level the church condoned. There was also <laughs> a beautiful history of those who we're trying to abolish slavery on biblical grounds and all this, but there's a, there's a history that's difficult, and we have to remember this is an ancient text written to a culture different from our own, and when we hear the word slavery here, we need to think of it a little bit, um, a little bit differently. If you lived during these times, uh, you were a slave for probably uh, 
a couple different reasons. This is how historian N.T. Wright says it. He says, we moderns need to remind ourselves that in the ancient world, anyone could become a slave. All you had to do was to be on the losing side in a battle or suffer a major business failure. Slavery had nothing to do with ethnic background or skin color. People could move up and down this social scale depending on political stability, famine, disease, population, size, and taxation. Freedom from slavery was possible either by payment of a ransom price or else by the master or owning or owner granting release. Nevertheless, this ancient practice was still brutal, and individuals created in the image of God were still treated as property. So as we look at this text, as we approach it this morning, I want us to do so in the context of a couple things. First of all, we look back at the ancient times. We look at the Roman church, and we look at this beautiful multi-ethnic church. We look at slave and free, rich, poor, male, female, Greek, Roman, Jewish background, and this beautiful statement by Paul that says we are all one in Christ, and that is our primary identity. And then we stack that up against our own painful history with our wonderful ideals but yet a disconnect there at times. And we're reminded that in our own past, when we think of the church in this country, we think of segregation, we think of separation, we think of this. And then we stack that up against the biblical model and we say this isn't right. And when we hear, as we did this week, of Violence against Asian Americans, violence against women. We hear these things. We see these things. And in this past year, we've seen all kinds of these things. So how in light of the gospel do we respond? First of all, we can say this is, this is wrong. <laughs> we condemn this. This is not biblical. On what grounds? It's an offense against the very character, the very nature of God. So our heart should break. And at another, another level, I, I think as I, I look in the mirror, I say, I've got to repent. And I've got to say, at what level personally, what level corporately, uh, are we indifferent? Are we callous? Are we complicit in that which is against the gospel? And at the same time, we're led to pray. And as I think specifically about this particular moment, our particular church, uh, we have a Chinese church that meets on our campus, led by Dr. Ping, sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel in ways that we may not be able to do right here. So I think it's good that we pray. So would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you today, We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this beautiful picture of love, of this beautiful picture of grace. We're also reminded of how we fall short 
as individuals, as a church. So we ask for your forgiveness for our indifference, our failure to see, our failure to love, our failure to do what is right and what is just. So this morning we pray specifically for healing between people. We pray for those who are experiencing violence and racism of any kind, that they would find peace and freedom in Christ. We pray specifically for Dr. Ping and the Chinese Christian church that meets upstairs here every Sunday, that they would find nothing but warmth and unity here in our midst. And we pray that you would continue to use them in a powerful way for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now this morning, we move from the corporate, maybe perhaps the national stage, to the individual. We're going to look at our hearts this morning. Are you ready to be meddled with this morning? Are you ready to be challenged? I hope you came here this morning thinking God will reveal something through his word that will actually change me this morning. That will actually change me. That you're actually here in this place at this time sitting under the word. As imperfect as my words may be, And here's one thing, just a quick aside as a pastor. You labor and you study all week, and you're you're always out over your skis. You, you, You see this picture of obedience. You see this perfect picture of love, and you say, i got to teach this stuff, and my heart is not quite there yet. So God's already working on me, already challenging me, and I want his words to challenge you this morning. So we're going to look at the root cause of obedience. We're going to look at the effects of obedience and the process of obedience. Because this stuff matters. It matters for now. It matters for eternity. First of all, let's look at the root cause of obedience. Let me take you to Romans 6.16. Paul says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Part of what Paul is saying is you are a slave to the one you obey. Now, I was thinking about problems of obedience. Anybody have a problem with obedience? I'll tell you who has a problem with obedience. This guy right here. This is my dog, Charlie. Charlie has an obedience problem. Oh yeah, he's really sweet. He's really cute. Beautiful story. He was one of ten rescued. He didn't quite understand the gospel and how he was rescued and how he ought to live in response to that. (laughs) But this is what Charlie does. You put anything out on the counter, it's gone. Leather shoes out, gone. 
once tore up an entire couch. My wife, Kim, was happy because she wanted a new couch anyway. <laughs> you have an open door, Charlie's gone. Once he ran out the door, breakneck speed, ran into the, the neighbor's chain-link old fence, which had some spring in it, boom, shot him back 15 yards. <laughs> he took the hit and kept on going. But here's what you see about Charlie. Charlie has an obedience problem. Charlie will be led by whatever pleases him in the moment. Whatever pleases him in the moment, Charlie will go to. I am not his master. <laughs> his desire for pleasure is his master. Charlie lives in the forced, forced obedience of the leash, the bark collar, and the closed door. That is Charlie's life. I'm not sure a dog can sin, but he is led by his sinful desires. Perhaps some of you today, you feel a little bit like Charlie. A little bit like Charlie. And you are led by whatever pleases you the most in the moment. Now, Paul says we are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Either you will be obedient to your sinful passions or you are obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So what does this mean? This means you obey what you are committed to or attached to the most. You and I, we obey whatever we are attached to the most, whatever we are committed to. What does Jesus himself say in John 14, 15? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I want you to think about that sometimes. Okay, sometimes we hear that and we say, you know, our obedience is, a, is what proves our love, and that, that's true, but I want you to think of it another way. If you love me, you will obey. What precedes obedience? Love. Love is what comes before obedience. So how do you know your greatest attachment? How do you know this? I mean, you can hear this. You say, yes, amen. Preach it. Preach it for that person over there, not for me. But how do you know what your greatest attachment is? What is your first and your strongest response when you are faced with a choice? Let me give you some scenarios here. This may apply to you, but I want you to think about it. Say, for instance, you have a kid, and your kid is a basketball player. Rough year for Indiana, any Indiana team this year in the tournament. We're still lamenting that. But you got a kid playing, and your kid doesn't get the playing time he or she desires. You yell at the ref. 
You can't cheer others on. Your kid comes home and you say, oh, that coach, it's all political. And you think about that and you say, okay, as a follower of Jesus, how am I? What's the disconnect here? What is my greatest love? You max out your retirement contribution, but you give the church your leftovers. What's your greatest love? You never miss a practice or sporting event for your kid, but you don't go to church if you don't feel like it or a better offer comes up. Now I'm meddling. You make fun of the kid at the lunch table. You look down on the family who doesn't look like you or share your beliefs. You have an addiction that you're afraid to share with anyone. Notice the conflict. How others see me versus how God sees me. You've massaged the truth to make yourself, your family, or your company look better. You're crushed when nobody sees or appreciates the good work that you've done. Your mood instantly changes when somebody compliments you or comments on your social media post. You spend more time on social media than having actual conversations. You have a problem that you're trying to solve. You've Googled it, but you haven't prayed about it in the last week. You haven't shared anything about your walk with Jesus with someone outside the church in the last three months. You took the easy way out when you know you needed to do the right thing that was harder. You feel like there are never enough hours in the day to get everything done. Did I hit anybody this morning? Most of those have hit me either this week or at some time. I bring these to you as a fellow follower of Jesus. So let me challenge you this morning. When you look at competing loves, when you look at your life right now, where does this hit you? Where is there a greater love that is challenging you? Whether it's money, power, pleasure, family, reputation, security, pleasing others. Do a little diagnostic right now. Where is there competition? Where is there competition? Where is there something that you are holding up side by side and saying, what is my greater love? We can say anything we want. I can say anything I want. But we're in the right now. When we're in the challenge, what are those competing forces for your love? Now, as a follower of Jesus, who do you belong to? The one who has been raised from the dead. Again, if this isn't true, go home. That's <laughs> what we're going to make a big deal out of in two weeks. Easter Sunday is a big deal, but every Sunday is Easter Sunday because he has risen, and that makes all the difference. We can be bound to Jesus. 
Now think about this. What does Jesus say? Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When we follow Jesus, we are yoked, we are connected to Him. We're connected to Him. We are all yoked to something. I like being yoked to Jesus. Everyone is attached to something. Everyone has a burden to carry. What burden do you want to carry? The burden of doing it on your own? Of carrying it all on your own? Your own performance? Your own record? Your own try-hardness? Or are you yoked to Jesus this morning? Because when I'm yoked, when I understand what He has done, my motivation is one of gratitude. I don't have to earn it. That's part of the law of grace. I understand what God has done for me. Now, let's look at the effects of obedience. If the cause is this heart level, what is my greatest affection? What is truly motivating me? What is the effect of obedience? What is the result? In Bible language, a lot of times we talk about the fruit. What is the fruit that you are bearing? Romans 6.21 says this, but, uh, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As we look at the not yet, as we look ahead, Paul challenges us to examine the fruit of your life. As we hear these words, as we hear Paul's themes of grace, we say, Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not the law, it's not my works that save me. Grace, yes. Free gift, yes. Full stop. It's never your works that save you. It is faith alone, yes, but faith does not remain alone. Genuine faith produces something. The fruit that we bear is never the cause, but it is the natural effect. Jesus' younger brother, Jesus, hit it on the head. He said, faith without works is dead, and he outlines this process of death. He says in James 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. Now, let me say this as lovingly as I can. There may be somebody sitting here today where you've prayed a prayer at a particular time, but there's never been any change in your life. There's no fruit. There's no change. Let me say as lovingly I can, if that's you, I don't know that you're saved. I don't know. So what do you do? You you come to Jesus and you say, I believe, help my unbelief, show me, help me, help me to put my faith and trust in you. May I be open to receive? But I carry the burden of you all sitting under my teaching. And some of you may be in that position. You've prayed something, you've said something with your lips, but it's not here. And it's never led to change. That's concerning. Grace, yes. Faith, yes. But don't leave here today without making that right. Now, let's talk about the process of obedience. We use a fancy word called sanctification. This is the process. All that justification, redemption, all this moment in time, put your faith and trust in Christ, you're saved. Sanctification is the process of change, of becoming more like Jesus, more holy, more obedient. This is a process. Let's look at it. Romans 7 5 says this, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. He said in 622, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So sanctification is this process of becoming more like Jesus. When does this process end? (laughs) It is ongoing. I don't care if you're 18 or 80. God still has work to do in your heart and in my heart. Those of you over 70, have you seen God work and continue to change you? Amen. Right? Wherever you are. The tragedy is to never grow or to get stuck. To say, I got it all figured out at age 35 and I'm never going to grow. (laughs) I love it when I see people who are still 
battling, still growing in the last leg of their journey on this earth. That is inspiring to me. Now, that requires some effort, some work. My effort, my work doesn't save me. But here's the beautiful thing. In our sanctification process, grace is still there. Grace still guides me. Grace still sustains me. It's not like Jesus says, I rescued you, I saved you. Now you're on your own. Good luck. No, 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 no. We are in Christ. Jesus is with us through this whole process. How does that work? He says, well, you have the Holy Spirit. Serve in the new way of the Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit does a lot of things, but He makes us more like Jesus. He makes us more obedient. 1 Peter 1-2 says, obedience comes through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So what does the Spirit actually do? Well, first of all, what the Spirit is going to do guides us into all truth, looks at our life against the Word, and reveals and identifies your sin and my sin. When you're convicted, when we're convicted, whether it's in the smallest things, does God care about how you behave at a basketball game, at a football game? Of course. Does God care what you do in the middle of the night when you're tired and course. God cares about all those things. He reveals, He identifies your sin. But the Holy Spirit is so much more than your conscience. I want you to think about that a minute. The Holy Spirit helps us by helping us see Jesus more clearly. Pointing us to Jesus, attaching us to Jesus, showing us that Jesus is better. Jesus is more worthy, more beautiful, more meaningful. The one who deserves our worship. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You stack up all these other things, all these other pursuits. <laughs> if you're like my dog Charlie and you're just <sighs> on the pursuit of whatever, the Holy Spirit's saying, stop. There's something greater. There's something better. There's something more meaningful. Our attraction to and our attachment to Jesus grows stronger through the Spirit. And our attraction and our attachment to every other pursuit grows weaker. That, my friends, is what the Spirit does. So to be under grace is not to not be just free running around like my dog Charlie hoping you won't run into the fence or ultimately get run over on Main Street. But it's to be attached, connected, yoked to the one who died for you. <laughs> 